I often get asked by listeners how they can support the show, and now I have a way that you can. So you can support the show through the ACAST supporter feature. Just go to supporter.acast.com slash yogaland. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. I so appreciate any contribution you want to make and know that the funds go toward paying my producer and other people who help me create this show. That's supporter.acast.com slash yogaland. Hey everyone, before we get to the live episode in London, I just wanted to give you a heads up on two events that are upcoming with Jason. The first is his online 200-hour training. So you can take this training if you're interested in becoming a registered yoga teacher with Yoga Alliance, or if you are simply interested in deepening your practice and insight into yoga. You can learn more and join the waitlist at jasonyoga.com slash 200. We will let you know when the dates and details become available, and we will send you a discount code if you join the waitlist. And then the second event is Jason will be back in London this coming October, October 13th through 18th, And he will be doing a six-day morning intensive that you can join from 9 a.m. to noon, as well as the module two of his hybrid teacher training. So if you want to get those details, go to jasonyoga.com slash London. Okay, enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone. I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is Yogaland. Hi there, Jason. Again, I wish I had something more interesting to say than hi there, but I don't. <laughs> I think people, I think people like it. The people like it. It's, it's, it's. We're, they, we're in front of a live audience, so we could, we could pull them and just report back. Do you like the intro that it's so regimented every time we do it? Sure. That's a that silence. Yes. Is a resounding. A resounding. Yes. 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 So we are here in London, in East London, at the Mission Studio. It's just it's Mission a Yoga and Movement Studio, and we're just so excited to be here for our first live podcast since before COVID. Yeah. So I so just it's wrapped been at up, least three years. Yeah, I just wrapped up teaching Module One and some workshops here, which were amazing. I'll be back in October for a spine and core module plus a teaching, or not a teaching, plus a practice intensive uh, that's open to the public in the mornings, which is going to be super exciting. And we thought since we're going to be here and we've turned this into a family vacation, let's spend some time and record. And when thinking about a subject, I did not come up with an easy, light kind of Friday night subject. No, you didn't. And And it came to you immediately. And so I didn't even, you know, I, there was no skepticism in my mind because you were like, oh yeah. This is what we're going to do. So you're going to explain. You're going to start by explaining what the topic is. The topic is, is this even still yoga? And I think that this is obviously a really important conversation to have. Yoga has evolved and is always evolved, which we'll talk about. But yoga has evolved to such a degree that I think it's a worthwhile question to take pause and ask ourselves, this asana practice that we're doing, the Friday from 12 to 1 power hour class, the 30-minute flow class with me on glow, like, do these still actually qualify as yoga? Mm -hmm. Or has this iterated and evolved into some other 
more modern contemporary thing that doesn't necessarily have the hallmarks and the underpinnings of what this tradition is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a really legit question. And I think there's a lot of ways we can have an interesting conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking it's just interesting because when things, you know, start out gaining popularity, which I would say in the States, it was sort of like 80s, 80s, 90s, right? The huge ramp up in popularity and an awareness that yoga asana even existed. And then it becomes, they things peak and it becomes really, really, really easy for everyone to become a critic. Right? Yes. Like yeah. everyone's a Sunday morning quarterback. Is that the right? Did I just use the right? Monday morning. Monday morning yeah. quarterback. Yeah. Because Sunday, Sunday <laughs> morning is like, the big day. Right. But I yeah. thought it was right. Okay. So it's, it's just really easy. And even this morning when I, you know, I, I opened my phone and I was looking at just how, you know, when the headlines just get fed to you, like you open your browser and you see a series of headlines. And there was a, an article, a opinion column in the Guardian here in the UK that was like, I'm, I'm finally going to hang up my yoga mat for good. And I went click through and I read it and it it just kind of made me chuckle because it was many of the, the common criticisms that you hear. So I'm just going to lay out the criticisms. We'll start setting up this conversation with the criticisms. Can I pause you just for a moment? Because I don't want to throw you off track, but I know that you wanted to acknowledge something. Sure. So I think we do that for a moment and then we continue on with this. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So this week, one of my, many of our teachers and one of my teachers passed away. So I've just been thinking about her a lot, Sally Kempton. She lived a long, amazing life. You know, it was, it was a surprise to me to find out. And it's interesting. I didn't feel I, sadness for her. I didn't feel sadness for her because I knew her really well. I was felt so fortunate to know her as well as I did. I knew her. I first met her when I became her editor at Yoga Journal. So I knew her in a professional sense. And I quickly got to know her personally because that's the kind of person that she was. She just became close with whoever she was interacting with immediately. We talked about, we've both spent time with her and we talked about how she was the kind of person that she had the gift of being able to meet a person and see them immediately to, to just really assess and see them and understand who they were immediately. So she, she gave me that gift. And then she also really gave me the gift of being an incredibly influential teacher. I had a meditation practice before I met her, but I did not fully enjoy meditating until I started to meditate with Sally. She was always available to me as a teacher. And I can remember actually having just gone through a really, really difficult breakup. And I had done a retreat weekend with her that helped a lot. And I was at work one day and I, I asked if I could talk to her and she called me at work and I went into a, an empty office and she walked me through this really healing meditation in the, in the middle of my workday, just because that's how she was. Yeah. So I love thinking about Sally in the context of this conversation. She had a great sense of humor. She could see the humor in life. And she also was a person who bridged the, the aesthetic world and, and the layperson world. So she spent about 30 years as a Swami in an ashram. Um, 
in the Swami Muktananda uh, tradition, and Guru Mai also was a was a leader in that tradition. And then when I met her, she had just come out of the ashram and as a layperson, and you know, she, the rest of her life was devoted about the next 20, 25 years was devoted to teaching people like us and to sharing all of the things and all of the tools that she had in the ashram in a very accessible, relevant way for householder life. So love you, Sally. And we're thinking of you. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So right before you spoke of that, you were referring to the guardian article Mm. and you were about to say, look, there are some, there are some reasonable questions or reasonable concerns in a modern era when we are describing the tension that we have between kind of the way we practice something in a modern setting that comes from a much older setting. Mm-hmm. So, and you're going to lay out some of the mm-hmm. concerns or the questions or the criticisms mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that make it relevant for us to say, is this still yoga? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So in the Guardian article, she was really hung up, and, and a lot of people are, uh, about the, the, the dilution of, of the classes and how you see beer yoga and goat yoga and, I don't know, martial arts yoga and this, you know, she was very upset about those things, which, um, understandable. It can get frustrating to see it can get frustrating to see these iterations of kind of taking things that have nothing to do with yoga and putting them together with yoga. I'm sliding off my bolster. Um, (laughs) My butt is suddenly really slippery. So the other things to think about, you know, if I were playing devil's advocate and saying like, you know, we're not doing yoga anymore. uh, It's no longer an oral tradition passed from one teacher to one student. There are some situations, right, where, where, where someone is fortunate enough to have one teacher and one student. But for the most part, we do group classes these days. And then, you know, there's also a lot of critics of the corporate-owned studios, right? There are many studios around the world now that are owned by people who um, don't practice yoga and, and, and are definitely making a profit. So, and small, then, small profit. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right. Not about the best investment, but, and then, you know, of course there are ways in which, as you mentioned, the, the classes themselves have changed, gotten short shorter formats. Everyone knows my beef with not giving people long enough shavasanas. There's lots more fusion classes than there used to be. So even just incorporating, let's say free weights into a yoga fusion class, things like that. There's, there have been some abrupt changes that you've, we've seen even over the, I would say the past five years uh, let alone the past 10 years. And then, and then there's yoga on social media. And I've never done this, but I remember Jack Workman saying he uh, went to TikTok and typed in yoga and he said, I, he's a young gay man. And he was like, it was just sort of like soft porn, right? So there's just like a lot of focus on the body, a lot of focus on, on the material aspects of achieving the poses or having a certain look uh, or having a certain type of body type, um, and and really just focusing on the the poses as the ends, right? The the ultimate achievement. Yeah, those would be the. Yeah, and you said it, but I think a good a good word to kind of encapsulate a lot of the concerns or criticism is the general commodification mm-hmm. of what has been 
a a more contemplative and spiritual tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think, you know, to be honest, that's one of the things in modern culture we do well. We're very good at segmenting and commodifying. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is a good thing, uh, but this is like when we understand culture and sort of cultural abilities, modern culture is very good at capitalizing mm. and commodifying. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what it is. So so I think we should expect to see that. And I think my my first thing that I would say in response to all of these things is that's all true. Mm-hmm. Like it's all true, it's all legitimate. It's a it's a it's a concern. And if you were the writer of this article, I think I think my first response to you as we start to kind of chip into this question is what is it of your concern? in terms of your body and your mind and your practice and your connection to yourself, how does it matter what other people are doing? And I think that that's, I think that's kind of the first thing that I, I don't think this is, I, I, I've thought about this topic for years and I do not think this is a cop-out, but I think the first thing to acknowledge is I actually think it's outside of the yoga scope to decide what yoga is for others. Mm -hmm. Because the moment I start making up rules and assessing your intentions and your reasons and your processes, I'm not doing my practice. You would be hard-pressed in any yoga tradition to see that these practices are anything other than your relationship to what's happening within you and around you. So I'm not saying that yoga is all about you, but it's about your relationship to things. It's not about other people's relationships to things. It's not how other people define. I would also kind of think about it as this, and, and maybe, this is, uh, maybe this is kind of silly, but when you were bringing up this article, what, what came to mind is this. Let's say I really love classic French food, which FYI, I do not. Um, but let's say I was a chef and I was classically French trained and I love classic French food. Why is it a problem that there's an Indian restaurant now and that there's a Pakistani restaurant now and that there's a Lao restaurant now? What does that have to do with French food? It has nothing to do with it. And I, th- I think this is the first thing that we have to do is, I think, is this still yoga? Are we still teaching yoga? I think this is a legitimate question, but I genuinely believe we can only answer it for ourselves. Mm. And I I think we can ask ourselves, and I'm going to ask us to ask ourselves, is my practice still a yoga practice? Mm -hmm. Is my class still reflect a yoga practice? Does my relationship to my body and my mind and my breath and my heart, am I still is it still a yoga practice mm-hmm. or is it just now a physical thing to me? Mm-hmm. Or is it now just a, an externalized thing to me? So I think, again, the bottom line, and I, I don't think everyone will believe this, but I think the bottom line is if I start indicting other people's relationship to self, if I start indicting other people's processes – I'm not doing the work for myself anymore. I've become involved in something that is outside of my control. Mm-hmm. It's outside, it should be outside of my interest. 
And also, if I'm this concerned about it, which in a way I am, then I should be making that much more dedication and space for myself to stay engaged with the practice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in a way that's reflective. And I, I think another thing that comes up for me is we can look at the contemporary practice and say, yeah, it's really different. Like, it's really different. It continues to change. It continues to evolve. We are currently at Mission in London, and there's a bunch of strength and fitness conditioning classes under the same studio. And I can guarantee that will give some people a headache, right? But I think what what we can legitimately do, and I think it's very important, is to take a look backward and to ask ourselves, well, has yoga ever been a singular set of belief systems? Mm -hmm. Has yoga ever been a singular practice? Has yoga ever been an agreed upon singular set of theories and beliefs? And the answer is, my God, no. It has never even been close. So another thing we can say is, like I just said, has there ever even been a singular agreed upon definition of yoga? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, no, not even close. And do we think that these disagreements are new? Mm-hmm. Can no, I? No, can I? Not actually, even close. And yeah, you you yeah. can you can. Let me. I'm going to say one more thing while you kind of f- find this this uh, little layer. So, the resounding answer is, yoga has there there is no single word. This is actually a little interesting factoid. This could be a, a Jeopardy question. In the Sanskrit lexicon the word yoga has more definitions than any other word in the Sanskrit yoga, in the Sanskrit lexicon. There are over 350 definitions in Sanskrit of the word yoga, mm-hmm. some of which mean crook, crooked, and criminal. Hmm. Okay. So, so what we, what we have to know now, cause I think that, I think that part of what this author struggles with is the belief that there was this thing, this, there was this singular mythical past that their expectation now is falling short of. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we have to spend a little bit of time just with a general understanding of putting the record straight. And I think there's such a great quote from Andrea Jane in the book Selling Yoga, which you're also going to write from, where she writes, There is no such thing as yoga. There are only yogas. She also writes extensively in this book that yoga has always been a heterogeneous set of practices and a heterogeneous set of communities and cultures, that yoga has always been culturally placed, and that the reason it continues to exist is because yoga has the ability to adapt to a current environment and culture. So she argues, and this is, I think, so clear, that yoga's modern existence and potency lends itself, that in so many ways it actually comes from yoga's malleability that has allowed different generations of practitioners to interface with it different ways. Mm-hmm. In this, I don't want to. I don't want to say that there's now some justification for everything is yoga. I, th- we, I think. I think we can actually kind of make check marks. Like we're going to go through check marks. Like, does your yoga practice contain X, Y, and Z? 
But I, I think it's really important to dispel this notion that there's even such a thing as a singular yoga tradition. The yoga tradition is comprised of countless, usually competing, different traditions. Mm-hmm. So I think you make two important points. The first is, and I'm just going to say it really succinctly, like keep your eyes on your own paper. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you care very much about this question and you are worried and concerned about what you, some of the things that trends that you see and that's, that's valid. Like I get so frustrated by a 20 second Shavasana and I, I will just never stop talking about that now. Then it's important for you to focus on your practice or your teaching or who, you know, you go to for your classes, things like that. So, so really focusing on your own impact and, and how that can affect the whole. I, I believe that it can and it does. You know, there's a reason I never have looked up yoga on TikTok. I don't. I don't want to look at that and be a part of that. I don't. I don't need. I don't need that influence in my life and in my brain space. So, so some of it is is being uh, mindful of what you spend your time and energy and focus on. And then the second thing that you bring up is the the concept of many yogas. And I think what I what I like about Andrea Jane is first of all she's not in the yoga community. And she, she talked to us about this really clearly, that she's, she's a religious studies professor in the United States. And her last name is Jane, J-A-I-N. And she, she found out after she started studying yoga from a professor standpoint, that she is from the Jane lineage, <laughs> which is one of those, just a very aesthetic yoga lineage, but she does not consider herself to be Jane or to practice yoga. So her perspective on this is very much a historical research perspective. And one of the things she lays out in this book is that the fighting between camps of yogis has been going on forever. And she talks extensively early on in the book about Swami Vivekananda, who is largely responsible for bringing yoga to the United States. I think it was 1890. 1898. Oh, I, thought 18, I thought it was 1892. Yeah. It was 1898. And Vivekananda... No, no I'm doubting it. Anyway, it, it, was <laughs> yeah, the it was the 1890s. Yeah, I, did, I did yeah. not pull out that fact. But Vivekananda was very... He very much looked down upon people who were focusing on Hatha Yoga and people who were for, focusing on Tantra. And there was a lot of focus at that time on, on Tantric kind of the mystic erotic Tantra in the States as well. And he just thought that was, that was terrible. So I'm going to read a couple of uh, paragraphs from, from here. So for something to qualify as modern, it had to be compatible with science. So Vivekananda sought to prove that Raja Yoga, and that was the type of yoga he was the proponent of, that Raja Yoga was scientific. In this context, he did invoke some components of Hatha Yoga, but only on his own terms. Basically, he appropriated the notion of the subtle body, which he argued had correspondences in the physical body as mapped out in modern anatomy and physiology. In this way, he argued, subtle energy could function as a healing agent. Health benefits, however, were inferior to what he considered the true aim of yoga, spiritual development. Furthermore, while acknowledging that yogic metaphysics and meditation could have implications for the physical body, he largely rejected the physical practices associated with Hatha Yoga. 
In fact, on the topic of Hatha yoga practices, he insisted, we have nothing to do with it here because its practices are very difficult and cannot be learned in a day and after all, do not lead to much spiritual growth. So this argument that physical yoga, that asana, that Hatha yoga is not the real yoga has been going on for a long time. It's, it didn't just start with, you know, sets and vinyasa, vinyasa sequences that are, that are so commonly taught now. Yeah, we see with Vivekananda, um, another thing that Andrea Jane, I feel like I don't want to, we don't want to be speaking for her, but I, you know, this is such a, a good book to introduce elements of what we're talking about. What she argues is that, that there has always been a tension between what she calls head up yoga and head down yoga. And head up yoga being yogas that are more intellectual, yogas that are more overtly grounded in philosophical discourse, head, head down yoga as the Hatha yoga practices that are the yoga practices that were more steeped in Hatha yoga, mm. that were more overtly physical. Mm-hmm. And what's so interesting about this, and again, I think that this is, this is an important understanding for a modern practitioner, there's always been tension And there's always been camps saying, this is yoga, that's not yoga. This is yoga, that's not yoga. This is the real yoga, this is the true yoga, these are the techniques. Those things are iconoclastic and they're not even useful or helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the reason that we're not trying to throw history under the bus, but I think that this, this question, is this still yoga, I said a moment ago, has this ever, has there ever been an agreed upon component of what yoga is? Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that's important to see is yoga has always evolved. It has always had a multitude of different practices. And I think in a modern era, like I'll just say now, when we think of Iyengar yoga or Ashtanga yoga as examples, we think, oh, these are like these are authentic yoga. Mm-hmm. And I would not disagree with that. But what we have to remember is these are two examples of radical innovations, mm-hmm. radical evolutions. They're actually pretty new on the grand scale of the yoga traditions. Mm-hmm. They're all modern. They're all post-1920s. Mm-hmm. Iyengar was born, I think, in 1920. And so what we see that when Iyengar started using chairs and blocks and belts and all of these things, this was heretical, right? Mm -hmm. This was absolutely heretical. But we've normalized it to the degree that we wouldn't even begin to question it. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes me step back and say, well... Is a kettlebell wrong to have in class? Is a resistance band wrong to have in class? Is a pull-up bar wrong to have in class? I don't want them in my class, mm-hmm. but I like those things. Um, but I think that it's, it's, it's a reasonable – when we're asking ourselves these things, it's reasonable to go back and say, well, what have we normalized mm-hmm. and why have we normalized it? And if we have included – you know, chairs and bolsters and blocks and eye pillows with lavender and buckwheat, and those still feel like 
to so many people, like, oh, well, this is okay, mm -hmm. but other things are not, like, really? Mm -hmm. why, why then are we going to draw a line at a resistance band? Because we've decided we want to strengthen the bicep a little bit mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. I, think we, I think we get very... There's, there's something that I, I talk about in my trainings all the time is the difference between a preference and a mandate. And I think a lot of times we try to mandate our preferences, right? And so we have a way that we like to practice and it's really, it's just a preference, but we decide that it's, it's how it should be done. Mm -hmm. Now with all of these things laid out, I don't, I still don't want to say Right. So I wanted to get to what, you know, if, if we're talking about what's the problem with bringing a kettlebell into class, what's the problem with having a pull-up bar into class? So then what makes it yoga versus fitness, which nothing wrong with, like fitness is very important. And Iyengar and, and Patabi Joyce knew that, right? That's, they, they incorporated. They drew, lot, they drew a lot from German and Scandinavian gymnastics. gymnastics. Right. You know, part of the story behind Iyengar is that he was a very sickly young man, and and I believe he was sent to Christ learn yoga from Krishnamacharya because he was so sickly. And so incorporating a lot of those props were to help his body heal and to help him be able to do things, to have more vitality and, and to have better health. So that's those things are important. But what is it that makes yoga yoga? If we're going to say these things are still yoga— then how are we defining it? So this is now where I think we can settle in. And as much as we have talked about yoga is different things to different people, and to be honest, it always has been. What we can also see is that there are some common denominators or there are some common threads across the different belief systems across time. So there are maybe five or six different what we can call common denominators of the yoga tradition. And this is where I would ask us in our own practice, in our own teaching to answer the question, is this still yoga? Because even though we've been in this conversation being very modern and very liberal and very uh, open with how we identify something to be, I'm also still not ready to say everything is yoga. Like I don't call gardening yoga. I call it gardening. <laughs> Does it have some yoga-like things? Yeah. When I train Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it has some yoga-like things, but I don't call it yoga. Like to me, it's very distinct. Mm -hmm. So what we can do is we can pull out the common denominators. And then as a community, we can say to ourselves like, am I still teaching this? Is this still part of it? And the first common denominator really of all yoga traditions is that all yoga traditions are moksha shastra, meaning yoga is liberation teaching. So at the core of all of these beliefs and all of these techniques and all these practices and all these teachings, these practice have, practices have evolved to liberate ourselves from our limited notion of being. Now, in a more traditional or historical context, the primary, the primary liberation was liberating the non-temporal self from the temporal self or, or liberating the small s 
self into the big S self. Or another way of just really making it simple is liberating our more material self from our non-material spirit, soul-like self, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I think it's still legitimate in a modern setting, however, to say, do these practices help you see you more clearly? Do these practices help you see your mental patterning, your self-talk? Do these practices help you see the ways in which you identify with false and temporary things? Do these things, do these practices help you call yourself on your own BS from time to time? Do these practices help you know that you are more than what your driver's license says you are or your history or your karma says it is, mm-hmm. right? Right. Do they make you aware of, of your, your own consciousness? Yeah. So as a yoga teacher, is am I in class helping students know that there are more to themselves than just their body in this moment? As a yoga teacher, can I, can I help you know that, that you have sensations and you, have, and you feel sensations and you're using your body and you're doing techniques, but also you're much more than that. You are also that which witnesses mm-hmm. your thoughts and mm-hmm. your feelings and your sensations, mm-hmm. right? Right. I right. think this is re- I think this is really key, and I- and also you know it's not that every moment has to be these things. And it's not that every practice, and then it's not and it's not that there there are times when I am doing my physical practice, and it is physical. I am moving through my pra- I'm taking care of things. I'm trying to move the energy. I'm trying to strengthen. I'm trying to open, but I know you know, I've practiced for long enough and I've touched into that, those moments of open, spacious awareness beyond, right? Just this everyday material body that I, I do, I know that this is the practice that still gets me in touch with those things. Yeah. I think that what you just said is really important, right? So on any given day, you know, maybe, may, honestly, maybe in my practice today, I'm just trying to breathe and stretch my hamstrings mm-hmm. because that's in this moment what I need. Mm-hmm. But is the sum total of this practice helping me see that I am more than what my mind has identified with in the short term? Um, and, uh, and I would say if there is no movements or no intention or no experience in your experience of practice of learning more about yourself and growing beyond the current moment and seeing yourselves clearly and kind of freeing you a little bit from your self-imposed limitations, I I would say maybe that isn't a yoga practice then, Mm -hmm. right? Like maybe that's not actually coming through. And there are a lot of things in my life that don't, that are not a yoga practice. They're not, they're not really helping me through those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The second real common denominator, and, and there's going to be tie over through some of these common denominators, right? Because y- yoga is this very um, 
integrative practice, right? Where we don't have like these perfectly distinct categories that don't rub off on each other. They, there's, there's some blending. So I think the second common denominator, we'll see this across all yoga traditions, especially historically, that all yoga traditions include theory and practice. Or, or another way of thinking about it is there is a, there is a philosophical infrastructure. There's a darshan, right? There's a worldview. So all yoga practices have a worldview and a set of practices, right? A, a couple of very simple examples, even not hatha yoga examples. If you are a student of Patanjali yoga or Raja yoga or classical yoga, all the same thing you have a lot of time that you are studying the yoga sutra attributed to Patanjali and meditating. So Patanjali's method of liberation is meditation, right? This is really important. Patanjali's method of liberation is not the yamas or the niyamas or asana or pranayama. Those are the early setup phases. Patanjali's method of liberation or moksha shastra, is meditation. For hatha yogis, traditionally hatha yoga, there is theory, but a very small amount of theory. That theory is mostly about um, kundalini and how it moves in the body. And then the vast majority of the practices, the asana, the pranayama, the mudra, um, and the bandhas, Mm -hmm are practices to regulate that kundalini. Right, and you're talking about very traditional hatha totally. yoga from the hatha yoga pradipika. Totally, and, yep. and others, but yes, yep. right? And then what you'll also see is karma yogis. Karma yogis have a philosophical infrastructure and they go do that stuff, mm-hmm. right? So, so, or one more I'll throw out, right? Just so we have like some historical context to it. Yana yogis or... Uh, bhakti yogis, mm-hmm. there, is, there are philosophical belief systems and worldview and practices. And so all styles of yoga historically, and I, and I think it's important to use as a reference, they do practices and also there is some amount of philosophical inquiry. There's some amount of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some amount, I mean, I think so many people in this room and so many of our audience, they got into yoga, yoga practice, and then they picked up a book at some point, or they listened to a lecture at some point, right? They, they, or they took a class at some point that is a little bit more of the philosophical component. So I think it's important that as a, as a yogi, uh, and the ratio for different people might be very different of how you spend your time, but I think even if you love to just do a billion chaturangas, to understand and to start to look a little bit at the philosophical worldview is an integrable, integral part mm-hmm. of this staying mm-hmm. a yoga practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We're going to talk about – we're going to get more deep into your description of Hatha in another episode. I'm feeling we need to do that, but okay, right. I think most any like anything that we think of in a modern setting as yoga, like it, that includes a yoga class, mm-hmm. is Hatha. I agree. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> but we They're don't usually talk about Kundalini on the podcast. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but Kundalini is a specific school of Hatha yoga. Right. But all Hatha yoga evolved to focus on Kundalini. No. So. We're gonna talk. We're gonna. Okay. Okay. We're gonna, we're gonna table gonna, this. We'll put a pin in this one. Yes, we're gonna okay. put a pin in this okay. because I think it requires a little bit more explanation. Sure. That's all. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Um, all number three. All practices and approaches to yoga include these two components: abhyasa and vairagya. They all include abhyasa and vairagya. And there's a couple of different ways that we can talk about abhyasa and vairagya. The simplest way of thinking about it is working hard and letting go. All of them. This is across the board. This is actually even something that I think is unconsciously baked in to some of the most overtly what seems like just a physical yoga practice classes. You work really hard, you work really hard, teacher says work really hard, work really hard, and at some point, most of them at some point are like, and now let go. Mm-hmm. Now let it go, relax. Mm-hmm. So these, all of these traditions include a strong-willed, consistent effort over time mm-hmm. and also letting go of the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And when I think about yoga and what it means to me, this relationship between these two um, is, is a really, is, is still really hard for me. It's still what I focus on is still so valuable. Which one of these is easier for me? The effort. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For most. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know. But I, I always like the the visual that I learned from Richard Rosen, which I think is a very common visual, which is the the two wings of the bird, right? Effort and the surrender, the as the two wings of the bird that keep the bird aloft, right? If you just have one wing flapping, you're not going to fly, and that those two wings are keeping you aloft and uh, aiming toward. A, equanimity, that those two working in tandem are what lead you toward equanimity. Yeah. And I also think this in terms of as a teacher trying to be a little bit more overt about including historical, traditional across time elements, especially in terms of theming, this is about as helpful across the board for people as it is. Mm -hmm. Work hard and let go. Do your best, then let go. Mm -hmm. Another, I'll just be brief with it, but another way of thinking about abhyasa and vairagya is that the one is efforts towards change. The other is letting go of old patterns, right? And so if we think about breaking a habit, what's the hard part of breaking a habit? The hard part of breaking a habit isn't doing something new. Mm -hmm. It's letting go of the past, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's the it's the challenge of it's the challenging effort of growth often isn't adding something it's letting go of a previously held belief or a previously held behavior 
or a previously held dependence. Mm-hmm. That's the part that's hard. Mm-hmm. The letting go is the hard bit for most, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Two more of these. And again, I think these, but again, I'll just say it again. I think as a practitioner, as a teacher, these are the things we can ask ourselves and say, is our practice including these? And if not, maybe we can emphasize these elements a little bit more. So this, this is very tied in to the previous one, to the point where I, I, I wonder at times if I should list it separately or just keep it. But it's that yoga inherently includes a profound, consistent effort of self-transformation. And I just want to take a moment and say, yoga is actually, it always has been across the board, all traditions, worldview. It is outcome-oriented. It is goal-oriented. You actually can't really read any source text of any tradition and be like, oh, they just want me to do whatever. (laughs) That isn't this. That isn't this. Um, There's a these the, these were very specific, very quite hardworking, sincere cultures that were oriented towards helping us change and access a less base and material element aspect of self and come into contact or experience the non-temporal divine aspect of self and that has always been considered quite a tough task. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's quite a tough task. It's the, it's one of the primary reasons that traditionally, what, that so many traditions were so non-inclusive and so exclusive is because it was believed that most people just didn't have what it took to actually have a profound commitment towards self-transformation and the so you, willingness to put this in. Are you referring to like the Brahmin class? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it was just, just yeah. it was believed you had to be of a certain, of a certain birth, yeah. mm-hmm. of a certain birth mm-hmm. to be able to, to maintain the disciplines that are involved. We do not believe this. Right. But this is a, this is a deeply historically entrenched part of these traditions mm-hmm. But these practices are really oriented towards self-transformation. One of the things that's important to understand that's different is these practices, I don't want to step on anyone's toes or irritate anyone more than I usually do, but these, these practices are not rooted in an original sin. So when, it, when we're looking at self-transformation, you're not going from a bad thing mm-hmm. to a good thing. We're not, you're not, you're not trying to like cast off some, some sinful error that you or humankind made. You're, you're the transcendent or the transformation is from having the ability to perceive yourself as limited to now having the ability to perceive yourself as non limited, mm-hmm. as ultimately just part of the infinite vast thing. So there's not a there's not a movement from like a bad to a good or from unsalvageable to salvageable. They, they didn't even entertain that. The the self doesn't change. The transformation is your perception right. and your ability to understand the dimension of self. Clear, this is a really important key. It's the clear seeing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then I think finally, um, and this ties in so well, but that, that yoga is a gradual process of replacing unconscious patterns and unconscious behaviors and unconscious beliefs with conscious patterns, conscious patterns, and conscious beliefs that are more in line with self-realization, mm-hmm. right? And I think this is something that for me, you can talk a little bit about it. Um, I think it was my first yoga class. I, whenever I talk about this one, I think of my first yoga class, I had no idea until my first yoga class how irritable, <laughs> how um, judgmental, and how like quick to judge my mind was. I had no idea. But I actually hated yoga so much in my first class. And I experienced those things so much and I couldn't just walk away. So I had to see it. I had literally for an hour and a half, I had to sit with all of those things. And it was in that moment I was like, oh, well, I I still don't like yoga. But I actually have, I had no idea that my mind was as reactive Hmm. as it was because when I was experiencing something I didn't like, I couldn't just turn around. Hmm. I had to stay with it. And so to me, when I, when, when I read this and it's like become, becoming, even just becoming aware of our unconscious patterns and beliefs is a huge thing. And I think it's pretty baked into this practice. Oh yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I, it's interesting that you say that. I definitely was aware of my, uh, many of my mental patterns. I was aware of my, certainly my anxiety. I was aware of my self-criticism. I was aware of my frustration with other people. And I was desperate to find some way to cope with it. I was desperate to find a healthier way just I wanted I knew I wanted to be happier. I knew I could I knew there was something missing in the way that I perceived myself and others and it there was like an ease that I was that I was missing and it was it was disturbing. <laughs> and it became all encompassing, right? It became to the point of of having going through a real clinical depression. So it was really, finding yoga was was really part, I was really a seeker at that point in my life. Yeah, I came into it not seeking. I came into it seeking one credit hour so I could graduate. Yeah, right. You went into it kicking and screaming. Kicking and screaming. Yeah. yeah. And it was also something, I had been pretty decent at the physical things that I had done, which were mostly very impactful and dynamic things, Mm -hmm. where your mind is never contemplating what's happening. It doesn't have the time. The mind in hockey and skateboarding is making these split-second macro decisions. Mm -hmm. It's not, you're not like, you're not like on a shift thinking, "What what is my back leg doing? How am I feeling? Am I still breathing? Why is the person? It's all reaction. So the things that I had done physically were all reaction. And now I came to this thing where it wasn't all reaction. You had to sit with it for a while and kind of be quiet 
And so I knew I had anxiety. I knew like all sorts of things about myself, but I didn't, I didn't really ever have to sit with my mind stuff and really assess how my mind was really reacting to the situation, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So this was, this was really a first. So this, this final thing of, does this practice help you see some of your unconscious patterns and beliefs? Does it help you let go of some of your unconscious patterns and beliefs? And does it help you practice forming new ones that are a little bit more amenable to the experience of self-realization or going back to this first one, Moksha Shastra, that that you are more than your limited notions on a day-to-day help you think that you are, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to say maybe one closing word or two just – in thoughts and then sounds good. I'd love for you to do the same. So I just want to circle back and say the answer to all these questions, is this practice still Moksha Shastra? Is this practice a continuum of theory and practice? I can only ask it of myself as a teacher and myself as a student. And if I get bogged down with what I think someone else is doing on Instagram or what I think someone else is doing at this studio or that studio, I just want to say again, I get it. Like I am super quick to judge and and so forth, but those things just aren't relevant to me. Mm -hmm. Like you said, keep your eyes on your own paper. Man, my paper is complicated enough. It's complicated enough. It's weird enough. It's dynamic enough why do I need to put my nose in someone else's business? I just have enough stuff on my own plate. And so to me, I I really feel that this question is something to ask ourselves as students and teachers. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we feel like the answer is no, like, then that's okay. Then, then that's okay. You can move and do other things. And if you're not interested in these layers, then I think that's fine. And maybe that isn't yoga. And that's okay. There's a lot of things I love that aren't actually yoga, mm-hmm. but I don't call them yoga. Mm-hmm. And if the answer is yes, and also I like to bring a resistance band in, and yes, I also like to listen to music, and yes, I also like to use a kettlebell while I'm doing it, those are technical changes, but the technical change, those are technical changes that are small compared to the technical changes that we've seen between 1920 and 1990 anyways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's well said. I mean, I think, I don't know, coming into this conversation, I'm, I probably people could have guessed what our perspective would be, but, you know, change is a law of life. It just, it is. And impermanence is, is part of, what we we embrace in this practice. So rather than bog yourself down, as you said, by by all of the the negative aspects, right? Which is it's just part of life, getting real clarity on why you continue to do this, why it's important to you, and really like what your personal goals are. When we talk about self-transformation, we have to think about like, well, where am I now? And and where am I wanting to be? I couldn't articulate that at the time when I started doing yoga, but it was 
was definitely a guiding principle for me. I wanted to be happier. I wanted to feel more ease. I, in my own body, in my own mind, I wanted to feel more ease when I interacted with other people. I wanted to find more loving people in my life. So, so even if it's not completely articulated, if you have a gut feeling as to why you are still doing this, then let that guide you and, and focus on that. Well said. Okay. Thanks, Jason. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. It was so much fun being live in London with you. Thanks for those who showed up. It was just great to be in the room together again. I will put show notes with links to the intensive that Jason will be leading in London in October, as well as a link to the 200-hour waitlist page at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 304. And I also want to encourage you to join my Substack. You can join it for free or you can do a paid subscription and you can find that at yogaland.substack.com. I send out just interesting behind the scenes content. It's interactive. I am now kind of polling the audience to talk about potential future episodes and I would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. So you can join that at yogaland.substack.com. Okay, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice.